episode 71, The Slouch. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 31st, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. The Civil War in the West was messy. It pitted freed slaves against American Indians and farmers against roving bands of guerrillas. Some of those farmers even brought pieces of home along with them. Join Assistant Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a rare hat picked up by a Union chaplain on a battlefield in Arkansas. The style, typically worn by farmers, became standard issue in the Confederate Army Was the chaplain, a devout abolitionist, performing the last rites on rebel soldiers? And was this battle for a dusty outpost on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border of strategic importance for the big armies back east? Later, we continue our theme of scandal and intrigue when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White, The Dark Side. This time, we connect White, an innocent writer from Emporia, Kansas, to Rod Bogoyevich, the shady governor from Illinois accused of running a pay-to-play scheme. White dealt with his share of Chicago-style politics, but he never saw anything quite like this. But first, the slouch. Yeah, don't you put me on the back burner. Today we are going to discuss a rare hat from the little understood Trans-Mississippi Theater of the Civil War. Very nicely done. Thank you. And that's uh, basically just a fancy way of referencing the Civil War conflicts that took place west of the Mississippi River, correct? Yeah. It sounds more academic to say Trans-Mississippi. Sure, sure. The hat, this hat, um, it's got a conical shape and a wide floppy brim, and it's made of olive green wool felt. Um, a Kansan named Ozem Gardner found this hat on a battlefield in Arkansas in 1863. Who was Ozem Gardner? Well, first of all, people are probably saying, what Gardner? So his name was spelled O-Z-E-M. Probably a pretty common name back then, but we don't see it much now. Well, Ozem was a chaplain for a Kansas regiment during the Civil War. And like a lot of people of his class, um, he was a staunch abolitionist, meaning he wanted to abolish slavery because he felt it was morally and ethically wrong. Um, And as a staunch abolitionist, there are reports that he did um, different things that expressed his views. Um, Like one one account says that there was a, a Confederate flag up in a tree in a a Missouri River ter- or town, a Kansas town right along the Missouri River, and there was a sign at the base of the tree that say, said anybody who removed the flag would be shot. Well, Ozum climbed the tree and removed the flag anyway. So he was clearly, came from an abolitionist family, he clearly opposed slavery, um, and at some point in his life, he made the decision that he was going to actively uh, work against it by joining up with a regiment. And he had been a minister before um, he joined uh, this regiment, this Kansas 
Kansas regiment. He was also a farmer. You know, he had to do a lot of different things to make a living in early Kansas, any early territory or, or early state. Um, and he also founded the town of Gardner, which is still around yes. in Kansas. Um, Ozim Gardner founded Gardner. Makes a lot of sense. It does. So he, um, so he came to Kansas as a as an immigrant, or you know, from from yeah. back east in the late eighteen fifties. Uh, he was born in Ohio. His father was born in New York. So it's kind of you know a typical westward migration that you see of people whose families ended up in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, Gardner was a chaplain for the 13th Kansas Infantry Regiment. What was the 13th doing near Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1863? They were actually trying to defend the fort against Confederate forces. Um, it's a it's a pretty complicated story, as a lot of Civil War stories are. Um, but the fort had originally been in Union hands. It had been established quite a while um, earlier before the Civil War. Um, It had been in Union hands and the Union forces, the federal forces just abandoned it at the start of the Civil War. The Confederates took it over and then around 1863 the Union realized that they needed that fort back um, because it's located, it's a pretty strategic location for the West. It's right on a river um, and the river was used to transport supplies and troops. Um, It's also on an old military road and those were important because, you know, the roads weren't around in those days like they are now. The, mm-hmm. the military established a lot of the roads. And then something you don't see in the east so much, the, the third level of importance for Fort Smith, Arkansas, was that it was on the eastern edge of Indian Territory. That's mm-hmm. present-day Oklahoma. Uh, the, fort so was sits, the fort sits right, on the, right on the border between Arkansas and Oklahoma. What's Oklahoma today, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, all of these Native Americans in Indian Territory, um, many of them supported the Confederacy. All of them had opinions. Some of them were slaveholders. Some of them, some of the tribes fought within the, within the tribes over um, slavery and whether or not to support the Union and Confederacy. So it was a kind of, it was a pretty volatile area at that time period. Um, and also, uh, you see that a lot of the Confederates, the, the Confederates organized um, some of these Native Americans. Some of the Indians organized themselves into um, regiments and fought Union for So it had become a real problem. Um, And the Union forces then retook the fort, Fort Smith, and right around the time they retook the fort, Ozem Gardner was mustered in as chaplain. We don't know if he was there for the Battle of the Fort or, you know, another battle, but he was there right around that time. Battles west of the Mississippi often receive less attention than those in places like Virginia and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. How did the war in the West differ from that in the East? Um, For example, at Fort Smith, um, like you were saying, Gardner very well may have witnessed Union African-American soldiers fighting Confederate Cherokee soldiers, Mm -hmm. which I just don't think that you would have necessarily seen in Lee's campaigns along the Shenandoah. Yeah, if, if it ever happened, it was really rare, and there aren't accounts of it, written accounts today, um, that we can find. So that it's a very distinctive flavor of the Western theater, not only the guerrilla warfare, um, but also the fact that you would have Indians, African Americans, and whites all fighting on the same battlefield. And sometimes they were fighting on the same side, sometimes they were on opposing sides, because, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, the, the um, 
Native Americans, the Cherokees, were split. Some were um, Confederate, some were Union. Uh, the African Americans, the, Kansas had a number of African American troops who were fighting for the Union, but there were also African Americans fighting for the Confederacy. So it must have been a really interesting battlefield to witness this. Um, and then you also have this really difficult guerrilla warfare going on in which I don't know how people knew who was friend and who was foe, um, because some of these Confederate troops who formed their own guerrilla bands for their own ends, you know, what were they wearing? And they weren't wearing, you know, a big sign that said um, Confederacy. They, they probably were just wearing hats like this one, which was just kind of a comfortable looking farmer hat from the South. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a difficult time for a lot of people. We do not know who originally wore this slouch hat. Um, what can the style of this hat tell us about its owner? Because it's called a slouch hat, mm -hmm. but really, what, is it, what does that mean? What can the style tell us about the owner? And was this type of hat, was it something that was brought from home? Or would, have been, would it have been issued to them in the military? Mm -hmm. um, or, and did the Confederate and the Union, if, the, if it was issued, was it issued by both Confederate and Union forces? Um, it was predominantly uh, a, a Southern-style hat worn by your average Joe in the South. They were pretty common on in all Confederate theaters of war, um, or you know anywhere the Confederates were, you would see this style of hat. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, it's called slouch because it's pretty soft, wool felt, so um, it's comfortable. It could be manipulated, mashed around um, in whatever fashion you wanted to wear it in, um, and it was very popular for that reason. I mean, the kepi. I, I don't know if people remember or have seen photographs of the kepi, but it, it's a stiff hat with a stiff brim and it doesn't it doesn't look very comfortable and I'm mm -hmm. sure it wasn't so uh, what happened was in the Confederacy these con these farmers um, who had been fighting for the Confederacy were wearing their own hats they you know they just didn't want to mess around with the kepi um, so eventually the Confederacy started issuing this style of hat um, but at early on in the theater uh, in, the, in the war it was not issued by the Confederacy which would explain why Ozum picked it up on the battlefield because it was unusual looking and he probably had seen Southerners wear it. Um, and just to get a little bit more into the description, our particular hat is very tall and pointed. It looks uh, exaggerated. It looks like a dunce hat. Yeah, it, it's an exaggerated style, but you can see a, a fine line towards the top of the point that indicated it was probably punched down in at the top uh, when it was worn. And the brim is very floppy right now, but it originally had grow grain, grow grain ribbon that stiffened the, the edge of the brim so you could wear the brim flat or turned up. So it was a very functional um, piece of headwear mm -hmm. for a soldier. According to a friend, Gardner picked up the hat a few days after a battle. Uh, what do you think, Gar or why do you think Gardner picked it up? Uh, was he collecting a war souvenir, which honestly is not really that unusual for not that time all. period, and it really wasn't inappropriate either? Mm -hmm. Or was he doing what chaplains do and tending to the dead? It could have been both because, or either. We know that this was his first battlefield. I mean, he picked it up really early on after he was mustered in. And, uh, you know, that, that would be remarkable in itself, the first battleground that you've witnessed as a soldier. And soldiers, I'm sure, still collect souvenirs from um, wars they've been in as a memento of their time there. Um, mm -hmm. So I would imagine he, he also picked up a, a dirk or a dagger on the same battlefield from the same dead Confederate soldier. 
But a part of his duties as a chaplain would have been to minister to the sick and dying uh, in his regiment. <clears throat> so that could have also been while he was out on the battlefield looking for wounded soldiers or um, dying soldiers to you know, <clears throat> identify them on the battlefield from his particular regiment, the 13th. Mm -hmm. um, and among the duties a chaplain would have had would be to go out onto the battlefield afterwards, um, also to um, comfort sick in a post-hospital, to um, have prayer meetings and and any kind of thing you would think a chaplain would be responsible for. What was like life for a chaplain in the Civil War? Um, I think you know. I think probably we'd like to think it was a little bit easier than it would have been on the battlefield, um, but. Probably in practice, he was in a, well. In practice, Ozum Gardner, we know, was in a lot of situations um, that were he was risking his life. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that um, these chaplains were very much um, in hospitals or, or whatever uh, infirmaries that were rigged up at the fort, um, and a lot of people, a lot of soldiers, died of illness during the Civil War. So he was probably exposed to a lot of illnesses, disease um, that would have threatened his life also. Um, and he he had trouble at Fort Smith in dealing with the morale of the men because um, in late 1863, after he mustered in, the fort was pretty much besieged um, by these Native American troops and Confederate guerrillas. Um, and there were lots of refugees coming in from the surrounding area. Um, they were overcrowded. People were starving. They were on half rations at best, sometimes quarter rations, so they could try and feed these refugees as well as the soldiers. And Gardner, not only was he you know, not eating enough to probably uh, taking in enough calories to um, have much energy, but he was also trying to minister not only to his soldiers' morale, which was down because they were being harassed every time they went outside the fort, but also all these poor refugees who'd lost everything, who'd been robbed, maybe had their relatives killed by Confederate guerrillas. So he probably wasn't getting much sleep, and it was a very difficult time for him. I can certainly see how morale would have been a problem for Gardner, having starving refugees yeah. in your in your garrison and having soldiers having have I mean that can certainly be demoralizing to have to witness that and, and it was hundreds of people coming in to hundreds um, which you know not only could they not feed, they couldn't feed their own soldiers because of the guerrillas um, stopping the supply lines and the communication lines so it was it was a pretty nasty time did Ozum Gardner make it through the Civil War? Unfortunately, he did not. And we do have a, a couple of accounts of what happened to him um, because of all these refugees that were in the fort, because they couldn't feed them, um, they, the Union commanders decided they needed to move them out. Um, and so they took as many as 1,500 refugees north. Um, that's all we know, but we really suspect it was north to Kansas um, because there's a fort not too far into Kansas, Fort Scott, um, which is right there where Arkansas and Missouri and Oklahoma and Kansas meet, or mm -hmm. very close. So it would have been a much more secure, safe area for them where there would have been food and shelter. Um, so he, as post-chaplain or as regimental chaplain, accompanied these refugees um, and the Union troops that were protecting them north. Uh, on one of the return trips back, the soldiers were coming back, and Gardner and a small detachment of soldiers decided they were going to take a shortcut back to the fort. And yeah, big idea. mistake. Um, he uh, was killed along with a couple of other soldiers um, when they were trying to get back to the fort by guerrillas. Well, on a lighter note, um, 
I have noticed that this hat looks strangely familiar to other more famous hats, and I would like to I would like you to clarify if there's any sort of connection.、Hmm. Um, so I'll give you the hat and see if you can explain the connection.、Um, so first of all, we'll start out with the scarecrow's hat from the Wizard of Oz. Our hat looks very similar. Any idea why that would be? I think,、uh, well, I think the scarecrow and a Confederate soldier probably had a lot in common, just because you know,、um, cowardice. No, <laughs> no, that's a cowardly lion. I forgot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> No, okay. You tell me what you think. Well, no,、is. actually, I mean, and I looked into this a little bit, and there actually is some logic to it.、Um, L. Frank Baum and some of the early illustrators who kind of set up what、um, the scarecrow would look like, they based a lot of their images off of contemporary political cartoons from the time, and a lot of their political cartoons often used depicted、uh, a scarecrow to represent a farmer,、mm-hmm. and farmers. Like you said, wore these slouch hats.、Mm-hmm. So then the scarecrows, who were supposed to be farmers, would also wear the slouch hat. Yeah, and that's why the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz possibly is wearing the slouch hat. It's unfortunate that ours looks like a caricature. <laughs> We it did. It does look a little cartoony, which、uh, yeah, somehow doesn't seem appropriate. <laughs> I will say too that we contacted、uh, a number of、um, museums that have Civil War.、Um, Large Civil War collections, especially in the South, and all of the curators said they had never seen a slouch hat this tall. They had no doubt that it was authentic. I mean, it looks authentic. They don't think it was faked.、Uh, it came into our collections really early, but it is quite exaggerated, and it does look like a, the Scarecrow's hat、it、from、does. the Wizard of Oz. It also looks like looks like a garden gnome's hat.、Mm-hmm. Any idea why that might be? No, why didn't you tell me, Merle? Well. <laughs> <laughs> and there's honestly like this. Okay, these are my conclusions, but I think there's a little bit of of, of logic to this as well.、Um, garden gnomes, as we see today, the little concrete figurines that sit in yards,、uh, they originated in, from the 19th century、um, from Germany, and they're based on German mythological creatures of these gnomes. And the gnomes are usually sort of caretakers of the forests or farmers.、Mm-hmm. So the gnomes wear a farmer's hat. Excellent. Yeah. Finally, <laughs> can you tell me why this hat resembles the Sorting Hat from Harry Potter? <laughs> I'm sure you have a reason to tell me. I think because it is a, it has a real strong resemblance to what we think of as a sorcerer's hat. It does, does, and that's tip. I mean, this is common knowledge that magical sorting hats were often used during the Civil War to help、mm-hmm. place soldiers in their proper regiments.、Yes. <laughs> Very clever. I have another connection too. I think、okay. it looks like the Pope's hat or the、uh, papal tiara, and I think it、Did、makes you call perfect. Call it a papal tiara. Papal tiara. Yes, I think that this、uh, makes perfect sense because Gardner was a minister, and maybe、yeah. he had you know goals eventually of meeting the Pope, going to Rome. <laughs> papal visions. He thought he was going to fit right in, you know, picking up this hat, and, well, along with the bishops、that. and their mitres and the papal tiara. I could see that. All right, Rebecca. Well, thanks for telling us about the slouch hat, and、uh, thanks for telling us about papal visions. You're welcome. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is the Historical Society's tour coordinator, Abby Perrin, and Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Ladies, good morning. Hello. Good morning. Today we are connecting William Allen White, the Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to 
to uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say the first name. I don't even know how to say the, the last name. But we'll go with uh, Milorad Rod mm-hmm. Bogoyevich, the 40th governor of this great state of Illinois, an alleged corrupt politician with a rather foul mouth. Yeah. Um, as I was looking for my six degrees of, of Rob Bogoyevich, <laughs> um, I kind of got a little disheartened reading reading about him. It's just a life filled with some sketchiness. Well, he's from Chicago. I guess. So, Chicago yeah. politics can be rough. Um, so we'll start with a little general background. Bogoyevich uh, is actually a Serbian name. He's a Serbian-American. He was born, uh, his parents came to Chicago in 1947. Uh, his father was an immigrant steel plant laborer from from Serbia. Rod Bogoyevich was born in 1956 in Chicago. Um, as a kid, he worked as a shoe shiner, pizza delivery boy, meat packing plant, um, and he even worked as a cook on the Alaskan pipe, pipeline. Hmm. Uh, he went to Northwestern University and later received his law degree from Pepperdine. He kind of really got into politics, though, when he married the daughter of a um, very well-established Chicago alderman, which is like a city councilman, um, who is a bit of he's a bit of a political machine himself, and he's also connected to the very powerful Chicago mayor Richard Daley. Um, in the 1990s, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Though he has experienced multiple federal engage- federal investigations throughout his career, in 2008 he made national headlines by being con- accused of conducting a pay-for-play scheme in the appointment of President Br- President-elect Barack Obama's Senate seat. Um, pay-to-play, also known as payola, it's a system in which, in what, in which, and payola is, I mean, it's like a legal term when used in the music industry. It's expected that recording studios, you know, they get kickbacks from the radios or, or whatever. And it's, I mean, it's it's legal in that capacity. So it's not just a term used by mobsters. No, the old payola <laughs> or a town in Kansas. <laughs> payola. <laughs> no, no. Um, geez, that would give Paola Kansas a bad... They uh, should They should really... Uh, they should seek retribution. <laughs> I'm sure there's some money in it somewhere. Um, so, okay, so that's kind of a little bit about Mr. Uh, our Governor Bogoyevich. And, Abby, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect William Ellawhite to Governor Bogoyevich. I do. Um, and I was actually surprised about the link and the ease in which I found this link to William Allen White. Well, in his address book, I believe, William Allen White listed personal contact information for Jane Addams, mm-hmm. who was the founder of the Settlement House movement in America. She's best remembered today as the co-founder of Whole House in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd give you a little bit of background about Whole House and about Jane Addams. So even though Whole House was known as a settlement house and the first of its kind in the United States. It was essentially the precursor to to today's community center. Residents of the Italian neighborhood in which Adams founded Whole House, uh, residents could go to the house for shelter, for English lessons, for childcare, health services. They could go to Whole House for just about any of their basic needs. Adams eventually received Uh, worldwide recognition for founding Whole House and for starting the Settlement House movement in the United States. 
Well, Adams eventually received this worldwide recognition and for her innovations in the field of social work. She was also a founding member of the ACLU and of the NAACP. But in 1931, she became the first American woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. But you're probably, yes, you're probably asking, (laughs) what does this have to do with Rod Blagojevich, who is probably never going to see a Nobel Peace Prize? (laughs) No? No, I I know you're shocked. um, During his tenure as the governor of Illinois, he did attach his name to at least one worthwhile cause. On May 26th, or May 21st, 2006, which was the 71st anniversary of Adams' death, the governor signed Illinois House Bill 5243, which designated each December 10th as Jane Adams Day to honor Illinois' uh. native daughter. Ah. Yeah, so he he did at least so one So he good helped thing. create nice. Jane Adams Day, yes. and Jane Adams was was a friend. In fact, such a good friend with William Ellen White. He's, she's in his address book. Yeah. Yes. Personal Which you can see that address book on exhibit at the William Allen White House in Emporia, Kansas. Yes. There you go. Yes. Very That's pretty nice. cool. Good, good job. job, Abby. All right, Nikayla, I believe you also have a solution. I do have a solution, which also brings in yet another shifty character. <laughs> We're all about shady characters here. So as we've mentioned, Blagojevich is the current governor of Illinois. That position from 1893 to 1897 was held by a man named John Peter Altgeld. And before becoming governor, Altgeld found, founded a successful law firm in Chicago that employed the up-and-coming lawyers, people who are going to be big names eventually, such as Clarence Darrow, who we know as being the uh, defense attorney for Leopold and Loeb, mm-hmm. um, got them a life sentence. Do you want to tell of, us a little what, what exactly the Leopold and Loeb uh, trial yeah. is? <laughs> Leopold and Loeb were um, on trial for murdering a boy in Chicago. Um, and Darrow successfully, well, he tried to argue insanity that they uh, committed the murder not knowing what they were doing. They had, like, um, delusions of grandeur. And um, they were convicted, but he got them life in prison instead of the death penalty, which is what the um, prosecution was going for. It was a very sensational trial, Chicago trial, um, very, you know, well-known, and people were following yes. it all over the world. And it set up the sort of the precedence, right, for pleas of insanity from that point on. That's right, yep. So um, in 1897, Clarence Darrow met William Allen White at the Chicago home of White's publisher, (laughs) Chauncey Williams. And um, they they met each other a couple of times, you know, throughout uh, White's life. Um, And of Darrow, White later wrote, I did not agree with a thing Clarence Darrow said, but I tremendously enjoyed the way he said it. That White. That White, yeah. He had a good way of phrasing things. He did, very folksy. (laughs) Well, that's pretty good. I unfortunately do not have a solution. Mm. I'm sorry. I felt like, you know, two (laughs) solutions is probably enough of Bogoyevich for one episode. It's enough for anybody. Well, and how many times do we want to have to say Bogoyevich? I know. I'm stumbling over every Every single time. (laughs) All right, Abby, would you like to provide us with a challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, 
Everybody knows that we're dealing with tough economic times right now, and it's always nice to have somebody to blame. You're darn right. <laughs> so with that in mind, we want you to connect William Ellen White to Bernard Madoff, former NASDAQ chairman, investor, and now alleged record-setting swindler of pension funds, school districts, and Swiss banks. Another fine, upstanding reason exactly. we have here, Merle. More schemes. <laughs> All right, so if you think you can connect William Allen White to the man who mastered the pyramid scheme, send your chain of connection to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. If you would like to see images of this distinctive Civil War slouch hat, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. In 1859, a young Illinois lawyer made a short visit to Northeast Kansas. His name was Abraham Lincoln, and at the time, he was a rising star in the newly formed Republican Party. The visit left such an impression on the future president that he once stated, if I went west, I think I would go to Kansas. To commemorate his 200th birthday, the Kansas Museum of History is opening a special exhibit, Lincoln in Kansas, on January 29th. Come see how this president shaped the destiny of the Sunflower State. Did volcanoes once dot the surface of Kansas? According to James Dryden, they did and he couldn't be happier about it. Following World War II, Dryden moved to Ellsworth, Kansas, where he set up a kiln that specialized in ceramics made from the nearby volcanic ash. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr examines this collection of Dryden pottery. Find out how this potter from Ellsworth cornered the tourism souvenir market. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Oh.